And please pray with me. Father, we, um, we do what we do every week, is that we come to you praying that through the Holy Spirit illumining our minds and hearts, we would see Jesus. <clears throat> we come asking you would open us to this text and this text to us such that we would be changed and we would be more in love with our Savior. We would be more your people. And we'd walk in the grace you've given us. Do that, we pray, and we will give you all the glory for it. In Jesus Christ's wonderful name, amen. <clears throat> so if you are a, a, a choir buff, or if you're a Christmas carol buff, you may very well know the song, um, the Christmas carol, called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Now, if you know this song, or maybe you don't, it's based on a poem by one of America's great poets, Longfellow. And Longfellow sat down on Christmas Day, 1864, to try to capture the joy of the season in a poem. And so as you listen to the Christmas carol, it starts out like this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But interestingly, by the third verse of the hymn, the mood just crashes. Listen to the third verse. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And many who have sung that song have at times struggle to understand how does this song go from such great joy to such dismal despair between verses. Now, if you read the poem on which the song is based, not just the hymn that's abstracted from the poem, you actually can figure out why, both in Longfellow's own life and in the life of our country. Remember that 1864 was in the midst of the Civil War, one of the bloodiest things that had ever happened in this land. And the verses of this poem that Longfellow wrote mimic what he sees happening in his country and what he has seen happen in his own life. Back in 1860, four years earlier, he had seen the election of Abraham Lincoln. And with great jubilant hope and joy, he saw a hope for redemption of his country that he loved, he felt. In 1861, the war broke out. In July of 1861, his wife, Fanny, whom he loved dearly, um, as the story goes, there's some historical dispute about exactly how it happened, was sealing locks of her daughter's hair into an envelope with hot wax by an open window, and a breeze blew in, and instantly her dress was engulfed in flames. He's asleep in the next room. He comes rushing out, tries to beat out the flames with his hands. He himself is scarred on his hands and his face for life with very painful burn scars. She is burned so badly she doesn't make it. And he is burned so badly he can't even attend his wife's funeral the next day. By 1862, the body count, the casualties, are mounting in the war. In 1863, his own son, who has snuck off to join the Union Army, is injured in the Battle of New Hope Church in Virginia very seriously. So by 1864, Longfellow sits down to write a song of joy about Christmas, and two verses into it, just crashes 
into disappointment and despair. And you can understand rightly why. Now, this is actually not a whole lot different than many of us, that we will go from moments of incredible optimism and excitement into very quickly crashes of discouragement and despair and worry and trouble. I mean, those of you who are at work feel this, whether you're in the senior executive suite or whether you're just starting to earn your stripes, <clears throat> that a meeting will go well or a, you'll sell a particular project or you will win a particular bid or you will impress your boss with something and you are on cloud nine. And all it takes is one email or one comment or one worry, or one concern, and suddenly you are just as worried as you have ever been. You can just crash into concern and worry and discouragement so quickly. If you're dating, you feel this. Particularly if you've gotten a little further along than you expected, you would still be dating. And you're so excited when the chemistry is clicking and you've met this person, and then he or she moves on. And instantly, you're telling yourself, I'm never going to be... I'm never going to find anyone. I'm going to be alone for my whole life. How quickly you can go from excitement to just disappointment and discouragement, and even, dare we say it, despair. And take it from someone who has talked to hundreds of you about this. This is certainly a true pattern in most people's spiritual lives. That we very quickly move from incredible spiritual highs, from incredible excitement. And particularly when we have decisively turned away from some particular area of sin, or when we have had the courage and have seen God work as we shared the gospel with someone, or where we have purposed and succeeded at loving in a way that is fundamentally different than the sinful nature that we have, after these moments of excitement, it is incredibly common to have moments of deep discouragement in our spiritual lives. Well, this is precisely what's happened to Elijah. Elijah has come off of, as James preached from last week, 1 Kings 18, where he has challenged the prophets of Baal, what has become the new state religion of Israel, to a little bit of a a prophetic power test here. He has seen God work in remarkable and miraculous ways. In the very next moment, in 1 Kings 19, because of one message from one lady... It all crashes down around him like a balloon's been popped. Um, Max Lucado calls these doubt storms. Here's how he writes about it. He says, Sometimes the storm comes after the evening news. Some nights I wonder why I watch it. Some nights it's just too much. From the steps of the Supreme Court to the steps of South Africa, the news is usually gloomy. 30 minutes of bite-sized tragedies. Story after story of homes that won't heal and hearts that won't melt. Always more hunger than food, more needs than money, more questions than answers. And honestly, my life in ministry and my life trying to walk with Jesus is a lot like that every day. And I suspect many of yours are as well. How do we deal with that? What would God have for us in the midst of it? Well, when we look at what God has for Elijah, we realize that if we are to deal with biblically our discouragement and despair, we really need to see two things. First, we need to see what we're doing in the midst of it. And secondly, we need to see what God's doing in the midst of it. And those are the two things that we'll briefly look at from this text this morning. 
First, what are we doing in the midst of discouragement? Well, I would submit to you that we are doing some of the very same things that Elijah does. And let's call out three of them from this passage. First, Elijah mixes truth and exaggeration. He mixes truth and exaggeration. What do I mean? Well, look at the text. Elijah truly has reason to be worried. This lady Jezebel is not a nothing. Now, he has just led the massacre of 450 false prophets of a false god Baal. Excuse me. King Ahab pretty regularly in the book of Kings gets portrayed as a bit of a a lightweight, and that's certainly the true case here. While Elijah has been doing all this, Ahab has just stood by meekly watching Elijah execute 450 people that he appointed to the state priesthood. And all Elijah, I mean, I'm sorry, all Ahab really does is he goes back and tells his wife, Queen Jezebel, what's happened. Jezebel's made out of sterner stuff you very quickly realize who's got the steel in their spine in this family. You very quickly realize who's got the determination and the will to act. And she sends a message back to Elijah and says, may the gods do to me, and worse, this is an oath formula, if by this time tomorrow you're not like one of them. Them, the gods? No. Them, the 450 prophets of Baal that you just killed. In other words, by this time tomorrow, Elijah, you're a dead man. And it's like somebody popped the balloon. Elijah panics and runs. Elijah panics and runs. He runs out into the desert of Judah, leaves his servant, goes further away out into the desert and flops down exhausted under a broom tree, no doubt watching the horizon for the dust of the person who's going to come kill him, and says, God, I'm done. I'm done with this. I wish I'd die. I'm no better than my father's. I'm no better than my father's. What is that? I've been no more successful in bringing the people back to Israel than all the people before me. In other words, I'm a failure, God. This is hopeless. Why not just kill me and get it over with? That fast. Now, by the way, that's all the true part. The false part is this. Elijah has convinced himself that he is the last man standing, that he is the only one left, that he is the last one the last human who actually believes in Yahweh. Look at verse 10. When he gets to the Lord and complains, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. True. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. True. Broken down your altars. True. And put your prophets to death with the sword. True. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. False. Elijah knows this is false. And you know this is false if you've been reading carefully, because back in chapter 18, verse 13, he met Obadiah, a true believer. And Obadiah has told him that Obadiah himself has hidden a hundred true prophets of the Lord to keep them safe. Elijah knows this exaggeration isn't true, but as he walks along with all his fears and all his panic and all his discouragement, that soundtrack keeps playing in his head, which says, you're the only one left. You're the only one like this. You're the only one struggling this way. You might as well give up. First thing Elijah does is he mixes truth and exaggeration, and that's exactly what we do. As we walk along in our discouragement and despair, that soundtrack keeps playing in our head. There's no way God could really love you. There's no way you could ever really leave these sins. 
There's no way any person could ever love you. You will always be alone. You will always be a failure. These soundtracks keep playing in our head and we convince ourselves of exaggerations as if they're truth. We mix them with truth. It's the first thing Elijah does. It's the first thing we do. The second thing Elijah does and the second thing we do is he forgets. Look back at chapter 18. Remember what has just happened. Elijah has staged this power contest. Him, Mono, versus 450 other people. Mono, uh, lots of Mono. And he says, let's take a try here. We're both going to set up sacrifices on altars. You guys are prophets of Baal. Bring your worst. Get Baal to send down fire from heaven, which, by the way, is just the Bible's term in the Old Testament for lightning, and burn up the sacrifice. 450 guys, they try every tantric thing, every mantic thing they can try, and nothing works. The end of the day, Elijah says, okay, pour water on mine. Do it again. Do it again. Get it so wet that nobody can doubt that if this thing burns, it's because God did something. He prays. God sends lightning down from heaven. The fire is so intense, it burns up the sacrifice, the wood, the water, and even the stones. The people of Israel rally behind him, cut off from the living, these 450 false prophets. He has seen God work in pretty remarkable ways. He has seen even the people rally behind him in pretty remarkable ways. And all it takes is one message from Jezebel. And he forgets all that. Well, don't we do the same thing? Look, you have seen God work in your life in remarkable ways. You have seen God provide all that you need, food, shelter, friendship. You have seen God take you through many troubles. You have the God of the universe. I have the God of the universe in our corner. And we so easily forget. So Elijah and we exaggerate. Elijah and we forget. And thirdly, Elijah and we despair. Look at verse 4. He gets out there in the wilderness, flops down under the broom tree and says, God, you might as well just kill me because there's no chance. Now note, by the way, he never considers killing himself. As bad off as he is, that's not an option in his option set. But he says, it might as well be over. This is absolutely hopeless. We've got no chance. Well, isn't that the same story we so often tell ourselves? This is absolutely over. This is absolutely hopeless. I've got no chance. God doesn't really care. I might as well just give up on this thing. What are we doing in the midst of discouragement and despair? Well, we're exaggerating. We are forgetting. And we're despairing. That's what we're doing, but you know what? 1 Kings 19 is not primarily about you and me or even about Elijah. The point is not primarily anthropology to tell us about people, as important as it is to understand what we do. The point is actually theology to tell us about God. So let's turn and let's look at what is God doing in the midst of your and my discouragement and despair. Again, three things quickly. First, God is showing us himself. God is showing us himself. Far more important than anything else, this passage boots off of when Elijah meets God. The turning point of the passage, the point where it goes from despair to activity and hope again, is when Elijah meets God and talks with God. So look at the setup. Verse 9, makes his run, 
40 days, journeys way outside the reach of Israel to Mount Horeb, the place where, Moses gave the ten, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Rolls into a cave, exhausted, no doubt, trying to sleep, and then the word of the Lord comes. What? What are you doing here, Elijah? We've already heard his rant in verse 10. Um, and God says, come outside. And then we see a series of the three most powerful natural phenomena that you could have known at that time in the ancient world. First off, a windstorm, a tornado, a tornado of such strength that rocks are pulverized into dust. Second, an earthquake, the very ground shaking and rumbling. Third, a firestorm. But the text goes out of its way to say that God was not in any of those things. Then in verse 13, a low whisper, literally the Hebrew says a silent sound. And certainly the contrast is meant to tell us that God is in that silent sound since the first three things have explicitly not been where God is. Elijah certainly thinks so because in verse 13, he wraps his cloak around his face before he goes out. Good believing Jews understood you could not look on God physically and live. So Elijah knows he's going out to meet God when he wraps his cloak around his face. There's something else more subtle going on here that you might want to know. We know actually a whole lot about Baalism, this new state religion of Israel that Ahab and Jezebel have put into place. We know it actually from the archaeological remains of a city-state called Ugarit, which was on the coast of what is today Syria. And from everything we've dug up and eventually translated and read there, we find out that Baal was the thunderstorm god. And the Ugaritic texts talk about that the thunderclouds billowing in the sky are actually the dust behind Baal's chariot wheels as he races across the sky in his chariot. Lightning is Baal's weapon of war. In fact, the texts talk about the fact that the earth quakes again and again and again whenever Baal shows up. And so when the Bible goes out of its way to say, look, There was a windstorm, but God's not in the windstorm. There was an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. There was a firestorm, but God's not in the firestorm. It's saying, this Baal is not really God. For all the power that you see in those things, that's just creation responding to the true God passing by. Where is the true God? The true God speaks. And it's in speaking with God, in meeting with God, that this passage turns and that Elijah's hope turns. And it's in meeting God and speaking with God that our life turns and our hope turns. Those are just colloquial words for worship and prayer, by the way. Meeting with God, speaking with God. And when you are in the midst of your discouragement, when you and I are in the midst of our despair, are the times we most need to meet with God. The times we most need to pray. By the way, those are the hardest times to come to worship. Those are the hardest times to pray because the whole point of discouragement is we don't want to keep going. But they're in fact the times we have to double down because of the medicine we need. They don't earn us a thing. But they are in fact the thing we need most. So when we hit discouragement, when we hit despair, are exactly the time we have to get up and get in the car and get to worship. The time we have to crack the Bible open. The time we have to pray because it's the medicine our souls need. We need to meet with God. We need to talk with him. And it's only after we do that 
that we learn the second thing, that we see the second thing. In this passage, the second thing God is showing us is he's showing us and Elijah his plan. Now, showing Elijah his plan starts a whole lot earlier in this passage than you might think. It's all the way back in verse 5. Elijah's lying down having his pity party under the broom tree. And what does God do? God sends the angel who shows up with food and water. Now, Elijah hasn't met with God yet. And God's plan is already there, already working, already giving him the things he will need to take the journey to where he will meet with God. And what does the Bible say? The journey to meet with God is too much for you. You can't pull this off on your own. You cannot earn your way to meet with God. You cannot repent your way to meet with God. You cannot do anything to meet with God unless first God has provided what you need. And his plan begins, his plan begins long before we even meet him, that he is putting things together to bring us to meet him. And then he goes on, after Elijah meets him, look at verses 15 to 17, he describes the rest of the plan. Okay, go, I'm going to have you anoint two political leaders, one of the nation of Aram, which is Syria today, the other of the nation of Israel, Jehu. Both of these guys will make sure, politically, that Ahab and Jezebel don't win. And I'm going to send you to anoint Elisha, the prophet after you, who will continue the work of calling the Israelites back to the true God. I've had a plan, Elisha, Elijah. I've had a plan long before this, God says. I got it. I know you're freaked out. I know you don't think it's possible, but I've already had the plan going. And so he says, verse 15, get back to work. Now that's actually incredibly important for Elijah to hear. And if you're dealing with depression, if you're dealing with discouragement, it's incredibly important for you to hear. God's not done with you. God still has purposes in your and my life. Even when you're in the midst of depression, in the midst of discouragement, and can't imagine you matter, God's not done with you. You're still important, and he still has plans for you. So get up, get to worship, get to prayer, and get back to work. Now, I don't want to overpromise. Hazael, whom he anoints, and Jehu, whom he anoints, actually do what God has told Elijah will happen long after Elijah is no longer on this earth. So don't read me to be saying it's all going to turn out perfectly in your lifetime. God's purposes go far beyond your and my small lives. They go far beyond our temporal understanding. They are purposes for all of eternity. But you and I can trust that they will come out. Right. That God is in control. And it's incredibly important to understand it's not about you but you do have a role in it. The reason you're still here on this earth is because God still has purposes for you. So first, God shows us himself. Second, he shows us his plan. And third, he shows us his people. Elijah has convinced himself, as we said, that he's the only guy left. God says, no, you're not. Verse 16, um, verse 18. There are 7,000 still who are mine. There will always be a remnant. There will always be others. It is so easy when we get depressed like this and when we get discouraged to think, I'm the only one dealing with this. No, you're not. As hard as it is to believe, there are others. And there is a body of Christ and there are other people who are part of God's plan to help you. In fact, 7,000 of them are nameless, faceless people to Elijah, but three of them are not. Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. There are other people out there, and part of God's plan is his people. So look, let me dial this down very particularly for a second. If you are struggling with medical depression, my goodness, please go see a doctor. 
Those are part of God's people to help you. If you are really working through some deep stuff, why on earth wouldn't you? Of course you should go see a Christian counselor. They can be a gift to you. A good Christian counselor can be a gift to you beyond all, all plan, beyond all hope, because God's people are part of his plan. He shows us his, himself, his plan, his people. And one more super important thing to say about this passage. All of this climaxes in Jesus Christ. Elijah, who goes from the, the mountaintop experience of Carmel, the victory, to the crash, the threat, 2,000 years ago, Jesus rides into, on Easter week, on Palm Sunday, into Jerusalem. People are throwing their coats on the road. They're throwing palm branches on the, coat, on the road. They're calling out, Hosanna, praise, praise the king. Hosanna in the highest to the one who comes in. He is on top of the world, you could put it. Everybody's hailing him as the conquering king coming in. Only five days later, he is hung on a cross, that entire city having turned on him. Is there, I mean, if Elijah felt a crash, has anybody felt a crash like Christ felt? And Elijah felt like he was alone. But the scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus is the one who was alone. After the Last Supper on Thursday night, he goes out to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, takes his disciples with him. The scriptures tell us the tension of knowing what was coming was of such that his sweat was like drops of blood. He asked his disciples one thing, stay here and pray with me. And they fall asleep. Twice. Then Judas leads the mob in. Christ is taken. Alone he is tried. Alone he is whipped. Alone he is scourged. Alone he is hung on the cross. And then the real aloneness comes. That God the Son, the one who had always known perfect fellowship with the Father, feels his Father turn his face away in wrath. He knows true forsakenness. He is truly alone in a way that we fool ourselves to think we're alone and we haven't come close to knowing as our Lord Jesus Christ dies on the cross for us, truly alone. But remember, God's showing his plan. And his plan might go past death. Because three days later, you find out his plan. That in fact, death could not hold Jesus. That he rises from the grave, physically, really. Walks back around. Shows that death is not the ultimate end. That God's plans extend far beyond what we can even understand in our temporal world that death is swallowed up in victory, to use the biblical term. And not is he just showing you his plan, he's showing you himself. What does Colossians say? It says Christ is the image of the invisible God. Everything that changes for Elijah boots off when he meets God and when he talks with God. And that's what we desperately need. We need to meet God and we need to talk with God. And the scriptures tell us there is one place that happens with our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God made manifest to us. hope. There is joy. There is excitement. Now, it's really interesting. In fact, Longfellow, for as down as he was, he doesn't end the hymn there. Let me read you verses 5 and 6. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. How could Longfellow get back out of it? It was so deep because he could see 
that God does have a purpose. God does have a plan, and he could meet with God. That's what Elijah needed with all of his neurotic, messed up, pity party self, and that's exactly what you and I need with all of our neurotic, messed up, pity party self. Look, this is really hard, but God is with us. So take a moment before I pray. Meet with God. Talk with him, and then I'll pray in just a moment.